the Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 16th chapter. From that time on, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus began to show his elders that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All summer long, our second lesson has been from the book of Romans, which, um, by the way, our Thursday Bible study group is going to be starting to study as soon as we get done with the book of Acts, which this group has a little trouble getting done with lessons. So it could be a little while, probably around the first of October, and if you happen to be free, um, 10.30s on Thursday morning, come join us. Um, Luther referred to Romans as the most important book in the New Testament. So important, he said, that it would well be worth every Christian's time to memorize it word for word. Luther sometimes set the bar higher than those of us who are mere mortals can live up to. The Christian faith, of course, which Luther thought was summarized in Romans better than anywhere. The Christian faith is not the only faith or religion in the world, of course. There are plenty of others as well, and there are plenty of good things that are good in them, at least in some of them, things that you and I would do well to learn and to put in practice, as taught by some others. Paul, however, in the book of Romans, is the one who just did the most expansive job of, of talking about what is distinctive in the Christian faith as compared to uh, pretty much other faith in the world, at least when Christians get it right, which sometimes we Christians don't get it right. Summarized in one word, that distinctness, Paul says, is grace, which is to say blessings from God that you didn't do a blessed thing to deserve. Summarized in one sentence, that distinctness might sound something like this, whereas other religions have their lists of good things that you need to do and bad things that you need to not do in order to find your way all the way to God, Christianity is about Jesus and all that he did to come find you and to forgive you for the bad things you've done or the good things you haven't done and to heal, to unbreak your sin-broken relationship with God, not just for this life, but even for forever. And so for 11 chapters, we've been reading from those chapters all summer, Paul's been saying this as clearly as he can over and over and over again in the presence of the righteous perfection of God, 
We are toast. We are crispy critters if all we've got to offer God in God's perfect righteousness is this puny and paltry list of all the good things I've done compared to other people and so you know I'm worthy of God's righteousness. No, Paul says, that won't get you anywhere. But here's the deal, Paul says. That puny list of paltry list of good things you've done to sort of appease God, that's not the only thing you have. For we are saved by grace through faith, not in our list of good things. We are saved by grace through faith in the good things Jesus has done for us. That's the big picture gist of uh, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Maybe you can memorize that much. But now starting in Romans 12, starting last week, which Pastor Sarah touched on, and continuing this week, Paul, who has all this time been just taking grace-filled pains to say that we're not saved by what we do, suddenly, boldly, starts talking about things for us to do. In Romans 12, he makes this really quite sudden shift from belief to behavior. As he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What Paul's doing here in Romans 12 is what some who claim to know that we are gathered by grace never get around to doing, and that is to say, well, of course, we're saved by grace, but there's graceful work to be done, people. So step to the plate, because some of that work that needs to be done is yours to do. In the sin-broken mess of this world, Paul says, don't just be one more piece of the messiness. Don't be conformed by the ways of the world. Be transformed, he says, into who you truly are. For you, as declared once again today in the waters of a baptism, you are a child of God. What Paul's saying here in Romans 12, in other words, after 11 chapters of grace, 11 chapters of it's all about what God does to save us, not what we do to save ourselves. What Paul is doing after all of that here in chapter 12 is asking us, challenging us, exhorting us to be more than just these saved by grace people who are on our way to heaven someday. He's challenging us to be committed people who live in the direction of the grace-filled desires of heaven starting right here and now today. Because, folks, I don't know where you get your news, but where I get mine, it seems pretty clear to me that the world is in a mess, a hell of a mess, I sometimes think, literally, and could sure use some grace, could sure use some heaven. In the 18th century, a man by the name of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, yes, that would be German to those of you who are wondering, was in an art gallery and came upon a painting of Christ on the cross and he was captured not just by the painting which he was moved by but also the caption the artist had put on the painting. The caption said, all this I did for thee. What hast thou done for me? 
That caption and that painting and that moment became a turning point in his life. He returned home with a commitment to devote all that he was and all that he possessed to his Lord's service. And he did so as a leader of a deeply devout group of Christians who are known as Moravians. The Moravians, who today are actually full communion partners of us as ELCA Lutherans, are widely respected today for not only their deep devotion to the truth that Jesus is Lord, but also to the truth that our purpose in life, fullness of life, will never be found apart from the offering of ourselves and our lives to him and to his desires. And so Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf's life was turned 180 degrees around when he read that inscription of Christ on the cross, all this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? And so Paul, in this chapter, is calling us to live lives that are 180 degrees turned around with that exhortation. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. In Old Testament times, um, the faithful took the best animal they had or the best animal they could afford and they offered it as a dead sacrifice to God by having it burned on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Paul, in these verses, is using the same language but talking about a very different thing, not dead sacrifices, but living ones. Now, of course, there are those, the faithful martyrs in church history and in some places around the world still, there are those who have died for their faith. And let us never forget that the church is built on their faithfulness and on their blood. Some have been, some are now, some will be again asked, compelled to make that level of sacrifice to die for Jesus. But all, Paul says, all, including all of us, are called to make the daily sacrifice of living for Jesus. Living for him how? Well, this whole chapter 12 is just a, is just a handbook of, of, uh, of what that might look like. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says. Be transformed. Let love be genuine, he writes. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another. With mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, bless those who persecute you, live in harmony with one another. By the way, unison is when people are all singing the same note. Harmony is when people are all singing a different note, but they like how that sounds. Live in harmony with one another, Paul says. And do not be haughty, associating with those you aspire to reach to. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, by the way, it doesn't always just depend on you. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with everyone. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In case you didn't notice, this is a way different how-to book than 
most of the volumes the world publishes and tells you to live by because the world's volumes by and large tell you to overcome others with power and intimidation and revenge and force. Paul's handbook says to reach out to others in love and mercy in forgiveness, overcoming not others, but overcoming evil by doing and then doing again and then doing again and then doing again, though you know what, it's not even your turn, but still doing again what is good. By the way, speaking of good things in other religions too, the prophet Muhammad said to overcome evil with good is good. To resist evil with evil is evil. Some Muslims, of course, like some Christians, don't follow some of the best and wisest teachings their teachers taught, but instead do conform to the foolish ways, which are in fact not wise, but rather the vengefully destructive and ultimately self-destructive foolish ways of this sin-first, me-first world. Paul's Romans 12 book, how-to book, is different than this world's eye-for-an-eye, in-your-face wisdom. It's different because different is what Paul is calling us to be. The world needs some different. And Paul's calling us to be it, to be different from the world, and it's lost in the night set of values because you are more like Jesus and the light in the night things that he values. And in doing that, Paul says, we are at last genuinely and spiritually worshiping. Now, this is a fascinating statement, I think. In the Old Testament, presenting an animal dead was a part of worship. Paul says here that presenting your body as a living sacrifice, offering yourself to God and to God's purposes on earth is a part of worship too because real worship, genuine worship is more than what we do as we gather here to praise God for this hour on Sunday. Real worship, genuine worship, what Paul calls spiritual worship includes what we do when we leave here, living the grace and love of God which is what this whole God, God's Work Our Hands Day next Sunday is about, not just to be the only time that ever happens, but to remind us that this is the deal, that as we and other churches throughout the ALCA gather to, to do these, get your hands a little dirty, doing things for others, service events, these are not things we do after worship, though that's how it looks like on the timeline. These get your hands dirty, doing things for others, service events are a way that we continue to worship. As we move from here, singing hymns of praise with our voices, we move from here to sing hymns of praise to God by doing acts of loving service to others in God's name. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, Paul says, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, and this is your spiritual worship. Because God isn't interested in truly spiritual worship without the offering of that offering. There's no such thing as truly spiritual worship without the offering of that offering, Paul seems to be saying. I cannot, with any integrity, 
say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior on Sunday, while then insisting that I'm the one who's going to have it on my way on Monday. To present your body as a living sacrifice, to say that on Sunday and then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, it's to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to have your way. Have things your way. Starting, here's a good place. Start with me. Don't start with him. Start with me. Catherine Marshall, um, the spouse of a well-known preacher, Peter Marshall, but very well-known in her own right uh, at the time, um, wrote with her that her daily devotions one time took her to these chapters in Romans where a little later Paul continues in this how-to handbook by telling us to not be judgmental and critical of others. And she says she has one of these Bible reading times and for those of you who are engaged in the Bible regularly, you, you know there are those times where it's just like this one word or verse just kind of jumps off the page and it's like, this is what I'm supposed to hear today. She had that sense that this part about not being critical and judgmental of others was jumping out at her and in fact was something, she had this strong sense that, that this was something she was supposed to work on. I mean, the world is, well... Judging and criticizing others. You ever see any of that? I mean, the world is full of it. And she just had the sense that this was a place where God was asking her to be not conformed, but to be transformed, to be different. So she prayed to ask God to help her not be judgmental and critical of others all day. And then that went all fine. Uh, until lunchtime when she met her husband and some friends and something very unusual happened. Catherine said that she did not say anything during lunch. Now, she had not taken a vow of silence. She had taken a vow not to speak judgmentally or critically of others. The reason she was silent is because she was just sobered by this realization that so many of these things that she thought to up and say were judgmental and critical of others. And it just silenced her. It wasn't until mid-afternoon, she writes, that something began to happen. It was like this gate opened within her, and this whole series of ideas and thoughts started coming to her. She thought of a friend who could use a letter of encouragement. She thought of a college student that she knew who could use some prayer. She thought of someone she knew whose forgiveness she needed to ask for. She thought of a neighbor whom she knew had gone through some tough times and it would be great just to check in with her and see how are you doing and it could be that all of those thoughts would have occurred to her that afternoon anyway but she was convinced that all those good things occurred to her because for one day anyway all of those roadblocks of negativity and garbage weren't allowed to gum up the on-ramp into her mind and into her heart. Do not be conformed to the world, Paul says. Don't be the same as the world. Be transformed. Be different from the world because you're striving to be the same as Jesus. That, Paul says, is the living sacrifice by which we worship our Lord, not just here for an hour one day, but every hour of every day. For look at the cross, Paul had said for 11 chapters. Look at Jesus who died and rose for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Paul says, in grateful response to his grace, it's time for 24-7 worship, which sings its hymns of praise by dying to the world's so often sin-polluted grace less value systems and living 
grace fully for him in the direction of your neighbor. Amen.